0: Go ahead and grab them, First Corinthians chapter nine is where we'll we'll jump into that in just a moment. Before I do that, let me ask you, do you like running i I do not like running I don't know if you do and if you do I've noticed that those that really love running uh, don't like to get picked on. I don't know they're a little bit more seem like a little more sensitive people I don't know, but uh, I do uh, I don't enjoy it. I tried to get into it a little bit when I moved to Mississippi. You find yourselves sometimes in a culture that you're unaware of, and so you try to um, understand. And so I jumped into it and became a little bit of a, of a runner for about six months of my life. I gave that up, thankfully, uh, no longer bound by that. And so if you are, uh, best of luck to you, I guess. But I, I wanted to mention it because running is certainly something that people do. <laughs> I don't know why, but they do, and they have for a very long time, in fact, and people are really passionate about it, and you see them uh, involved in marathons and races and all sorts of things. And so in our text today, Paul is going to be using the analogy of running a race. In fact, it's not the only place in Scripture that this sort of analogy takes place. And so when it comes to races, in fact, I, even, I didn't know a lot about marathons, and so I did a little bit of research throughout the week and was looking up some things. In fact, I found what's called the Official Marathon Handbook, which ironically was a pretty short read. I, I did think that was ironic. But it, is, uh, it just kind of describes some of the more unique races that take place over across the world and have for, some, for many, many years and others a little bit shorter. And one of the races I saw was called the Shrim. The Shri Chen Moi, which takes place in Queens, New York, every single year, and it has since 1996. And the, the guy, Sri, who began uh, this race, who passed away in 2007, he really had a, a purpose behind the race. And so this race, if you're unfamiliar, again, it takes place up in Queens between uh, June and July, every single year. And to complete this race, the athletes must run 3,100 miles in 52 days a long time. This means uh, jogging an average of just less than 60 miles per day and runners complete this going, get this, 560, I'm sorry, 500, I'm sorry, 5,649 laps in a one block loop that is 0.65 miles long. Over and over and over for 52 days they run. For the runners, they can begin as early as 6 a.m. and they can run until midnight every single day. They can take breaks as long as they want, and they can uh, skip a day if they choose to, knowing that they would have to make it up at other another point. After Shri's passing, the name was re- renamed to hi- after him. But before then, it was called the Self Transcendence Race, the marathon. The website on uh, for this marathon. It says this when in quote of the race itself. The trans the self transcendent uh, transcendence aspect is particularly important in ultra running. In our experience as runners, there comes a point in a race when one's physical prowess has reached its limit, and to continue on, the runner must rely on his or her inner determination to tap into an infinite spiritual power that is within us all, which Sri calls the soul, the representative of the ultimate divine. Being And so it's purposeful that this race is long and that it's just constantly in one circle over and over and it takes a unique type of discipline. And even the uh, Sri, the, the person who began this race, who founded it, he never claimed to be a Christian and yet was a spiritual leader and a philosophizer and, and a poet, a humanitarian, but an ultra runner who believed that this was to their spiritual help to race in this way. And in fact, running, has an, it has, it's not even a, a new thing, that it is a spiritual endeavor. Even the marathon monks of Japan, as they call themselves, participate in something called aiko which is a seven-year endurance pilgrimage to achieve spiritual enlightenment. And so in the last 1,000 years... Uh, there have only been 46 monks to complete, I'm sorry, since 1885, there have only been 46 monks to complete this 1,000-day challenge. And so just to give you more of just sort of another race that takes place of endurance and rules, this is daily, they have to eat just one bowl of rice and just one bowl of noodles. That's their diet for seven years. For the first three years, the monks run 18.6 miles a day for 100 consecutive days. For the fourth and fifth years, the monks have to run 18.6 miles a day for 200 days. And after five long years of running, the monks have to go to a full nine days with no food, water, or sleep. And then on the sixth year, it calls for 32.7 miles of running a day for 100 days. And then finally, the seventh year requires a mind-pending 52 miles a day for 100 days, followed by 18.6 miles a day for the remaining 100 days. <sighs> it's a lot, huh? And if they die in the marathon, uh, they die throughout that seven years, which many of them do. They end up getting placed in a grave that has no grave headings purposefully. They die a death of dishonor. They, if they fail to perform it, then they must uh, perform the harakira, which is the honorable suicide, and if they are able to survive, in which 46 have since 1885, then they are placed and become a living saint. That's what they receive. By the way, the first race that I mentioned of 3,100 miles, the winner gets a t-shirt. For real. Get a t-shirt. And I think one year someone got a DVD, but they don't do that anymore. So just a t-shirt. So from t-shirts to sainthood, the races, uh, they are filled throughout this world with difficulties and and st- maybe you've been a part of one that's just simply just a 5k or maybe a mud run or whatever it might be they come with different objectives different rules different standards and different rewards and so people have throughout all of history for various reasons enjoyed competing and I think competing is important and helpful and healthy and and can be done in a brotherly love and with uh, rewards that actually do feel pretty good I'm not I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't we should just dismiss anything in our lives that do not offer reward. I've said it once, and I'll probably say it a few more times. Mosaics men's softball team won the entire championship this past year, right? Yeah, it's good. And it felt pretty good. And, and when they gave us the ring, that also felt pretty good, though we all knew these things would perish, but they haven't yet. It's still sitting at my house in the trophy case, so thank the Lord for that. But there are, of course, various reasons to compete. And Paul knows this. In fact, Corinth is a very interesting place, and we've talked about it uh, for months now and how it was a melting pot and it was a metropolitan. There were people from all over that would gather. And one thing that we haven't discussed is the Ithmenian games that took place there. And these games that would happen were second only to the Olympic games. And so in Corinth, there was actually a hub that every other year there were people that would show up and participate in different games. And so again, the people of Corinth were very familiar with sporting activities and with seeing people run and wrestle and box and throw javelin and and on and on. And so we know that in Acts chapter 18, Paul leaves Rome and heads to Corinth and he finds Priscilla and Aquila and they are tent makers. And so he joins in because that's his trade and he begins building tents. And it's believed even that when First Corinthians comes, uh, is written, that it is during the season of some of these games. And so it would have given even more reason for Paul to have been there building tents. And so I say all that to... Give you the perspective of where we're heading in the text, and that the people understood. And I think that this this society is no different. In that, if I use some sports analogies, you get it. We live in a time that places are highly competitive, and um, we see sporting events taking place at all the, all times. And, and even if we don't, we understand the act of discipline that is required for it. And so, let's get turn to the text, First Corinthians chapter nine. If I could have you just stand. Uh, one more time for the reading of God's Word this morning. Chapter 9, and we're going to begin in verse 24. It says this, Do you not know that in a race all of the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we are imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is God's word. Let us pray. Father, we give thanks for this day. Lord, we pray with gratitude, but we also, Lord, request this, Lord, that you would help us Help us to better know your word. Help us to see the imperishable gift that can only come through Christ Jesus. We praise you for the access to your throne through his name, and that is why we pray in his name. In the name of Jesus, we do pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives prize. Paul is reminding that the journey for the Christian is not just some sort of quick thing, that it just occurs on an occasion. That it is a life led. It is a life lived. This is what Jesus actually instructs his disciples as they're getting going to be going and he knows that they're going to be faced with persecutions. He knows that they're going to need endurance because it is a race. It is a marathon, this life. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 22 he says and and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved there is endurance that is required in fact endurance that is gifted to us so that we can endure to the end and so paul again asks do you not know that in a race all the runners run but one but only one receives the prize and so as, as we've stated, as we know, there are many different races that exist. There are many different tracks, per se, that you could run down. But there's only one, that seems, in Scripture that ends with victory. That there's many other, in fact, we could call those other roads broad, couldn't we? Do you understand where I'm going? That, that there are many other things, but there is one that ends at the finish line with actual victory. And so in some ways, uh, Paul is is telling them or suggesting to them that you should not feel satisfaction within yourself just in the fact that you have received the gospel, but you should that you've received it, feel satisfaction that you have received it, but persevere with it unto death. And so they're... Is a difference in our our contest, if you will, and the contest of the world, the difference between our contest and, and other you know ultra marathon runners is this: that among them there is only one who is victorious. So in the in the one race that you get a T-shirt, you run thirty one hundred miles quicker than everyone. Congratulations! What size shirt do you wear? Is extra large okay? Sorry, that was the only size we got. That's probably how that conversation went, right? Or or they or or maybe it ends with. A, everyone pointing at you and saying, oh, you ran really well for seven years, you're a saint. But regardless, it's autonomous in the sense that it's just one person being lifted up saying that this is uh, your reward. You ran the race. And so we see that there is this difference between a runner who just runs past everyone else and receives his reward. And for the Christian, our condition is, you know, I think, at higher, it's a superior in, in its respect that many at one time win. Many at one time are on this journey and that require, God requires from us nothing other than we press on vigorously until we reach that goal. Keep running the race. And it's important that you don't, we don't look at this text and just think, oh, well, so I'm just supposed to do this by myself that only one can win? No, it's not what Paul's getting at. We have to use all of the scripture that you are not running this race alone. I mean, that we, we just stood here and you saw people become members and uh, you know the, the, one of the greatest purposes of that, and it's been stated, is that they understand and that we all understand that they're a part of us, that you don't have to walk through this by yourself. Satan is so crafty and so good at convincing people that they alone are the only one struggling in this area and so he isolates God's people convincing them that you will run this race by yourself because you're the only one dealing with this in that particular way but that isn't the case this isn't, the, this isn't what Paul has been saying for the past nine chapters. He's saying that you are, it isn't just about you. It's, it's, there's more to the picture that you're doing this together, that we are running not to hinder one another, but in fact we are there to help cheer one another on and pass the baton. The church is constantly, I think bombarded with the idea that you, you, like live your dream, your destiny, you're calling, all these things, and they miss out that God has called the church, us together, that we are to walk in these things together, and so when we are inclined to just separate everyone into different groups, and you have all these different ages, and all these different interest groups that, that are throughout the entire church, you're missing the fact that we're supposed to be running together, that even generationally, we should be passing the baton to the next generation and saying, look where, look where I have gone and, and come with me. And the younger generation asking, where should we go? And so, our race is just like any other race. It comes uh, with rules in which it operates, in which it's governed. In this scripture, it's no different. When Paul is speaking of a race, he's talking about a particular thing, a journey that leads with Christ at the finish line, but yet Christ throughout the whole thing. And so there are rules in which it operates. Second Timothy chapter two, again, Paul uses athletic analogies here. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And so if we're we're talking about this race, it cannot just be, oh, well, I'm a part of the race because I just I come into church, I, I check off all the box, I even become a member, I do all of these things, and I'm I've done what I need to do. And yet for the past, for the first nine chapters of 1 Corinthians, there is continued application given to the church of Corinth that you are to love God firstly and then love others. That's what the race looks like. That the Christian walk is not one little moment on one Sunday, but a life spent pursuing after his inseparable character and glory. That's what a Christian life looks like. And I feel like I've been, I've been saying this a lot, maybe it's just because it's been on, on my heart and the Lord's using this to work through me, but when I even think about the, the ongoing frustration that I sometimes have with uh, times of family worship or getting the kids just to sit down and listen to these things, I get caught in the trap of thinking that this moment is the life-changing moment that I need for them. And I miss that God is just working throughout the culmination of their life. Even my frustration, my wife and I were sitting, we were talking about the frustration, and it dawned on me to think and look and and say, was there one moment in my children's life where I could point to a day and say, it was that day that they grew the tallest? No. It's just a life of looking at them and noticing, wow, you've grown. Wow, you've gotten a little taller. Wow, I can't believe it. We gotta buy you shoes again. <laughs> like I mean, we just keep, they they just progress, but you don't know exactly when it happens, but it's just a life of moving forward. And so often Christians come in and they want this really quick, like, hey, I just want this thing, like give it to me and and move on. Or I don't understand why the Lord's not changing me, or I don't understand why these things aren't happening, and we're missing the marathon. That if you, if you have to run 3,100 miles, I'm guessing that when they say go, you don't take off in a sprint. Right? I mean, you might, but it, you'd have to learn to pace yourself pretty quickly. And so often Christians become distressed over things not happening quickly enough, forgetting how God works. That if the, if the farmer is staring at the ground screaming that there is no tree coming out, he could be missing the roots that are going down, right? That he could be missing the work that God is actually doing because he is just looking for the fruit in which he wants to see it. And so too can our own lives be that we just fall into this trap of thinking, I need it now. God must not be working if, he's not, if I don't see it the way that I want it now. And so we can become so weary at the first sign of distress that we drop out of the race because it's too hard. We can say, well, Lord, I've, I've brought my family to church two months in a row and still I'm dealing with this. And so the first moment of distress, we pull back and we think, well... I don't need to be involved or committed. Or I don't need to do any of these things. I don't even know if God is who he says he is because I've got problems. And what Paul is getting at is that death alone must be the only thing that concludes our earthly pursuit of his heavenly majesty. And notice I said that concludes our earthly pursuit because in glory, guess what we're doing? Pursuing him. <laughs> All the more, and yet this time in glory we pursue Him without weak backs, clouded minds, or shaky hands. That there will one day be a day where we seek His glory with no inklings of doubt or blemish of sin. And so praise God that we will have that day that we can stand before our Heavenly Father and He can look at us and say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter the joy of your Master. Paul is pleading with the people to understand that yes, there is joy, unspeakable joy on the other side of glory, but Jesus has much for you today. And so run that you may obtain it. Run so that you may obtain it. I always somehow find myself in the beginning of the year preaching in January making fun of a little bit of the spike in gym memberships, right? Because it's always the time where people are focused, you know. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've got just a... disaster plan for the next two months as far as food is concerned. You know what I'm saying? Like I've got, I'm just picturing the stuffing now. I'm picturing all of the things that the season that we're about to walk into of just warm and, you know, you can put on another sweatshirt. You don't have to show anything tight because everything's just expanding a little bit. We're going to, we're going to go after it, right? The next couple of months eating. And that's what most of society does. And then in January, it's this check of, oh wow, I think I've gotten out of shape the last couple of months. Maybe I had too much stuffing, right? Maybe the community group food is just too good. That's that's my group. I don't know about yours. And so we get out of shape, and so we work to get back into shape. And yet there could be people that just sit around and are forever out of shape and say, "Hey, I'm I'm wondering what do I what do I should I do?" And you say, "Well, just." Go, go to the gym, do something, be active, work. And the same is true in our own walk that we, we sit around week after week and some people come to church for 30, 40 years and still have learned almost nothing. They, they know just that they've just come and they've heard and they've just been a part of something, but they haven't actually been running the race. They've just been seeing others run, thinking it was for them. And so Paul gives us this understanding of the self-control that is needed, that even the discipline that's needed in your own life. In verse 25 of our text, every athlete exercises self-control in all things, and they do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. And so keeping up with this short theme of sports analogies, Paul considers the disciplines of an athlete He's saying, don't they exercise in self-control in all things? Have you ever been around an athlete? I mean, like, a real athlete. I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, and I hate to break it to you, the minsture softball. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying, I'm talking about not the guys that just show up because it's fun and we have a good time, and that's a great time. I'm talking about the guys that wake up and are thinking about the sport. They have everything that they put in their body, everything that they think about, everything that they're doing, all of their talking theory about the particular thing. They're, they're resisting certain things so that they can just expand their muscles in one area or, or whatever. They, they've got all of these regiments. They're disciplined. They have to have self-control. In fact, even just looking at the history and, and the games that were taking place here in Corinth, there was this bread called caliphium, which is this type of almost like rye bread that they had found was made from whole grains, and they, they realized that there were higher antioxidants in it. There were vitamins. There were minerals. I don't know how they came to all of those conclusions other than they realized that men who were staying on that diet alone, it was helping their cardiovascular health, and so the athletes of this time were extremely disciplined they would stay away from the common delicacies so that they could increase their strength. And this makes sense in our minds, doesn't it? Because we've all seen athletes. We've all seen men and women who put their bodies to the test, who, who do extreme things for rewards that they have imagined receiving. And they, we can see it. Extremely disciplined people. Not just Christians. I mean, Humanity, there are places, people in humanity that are so disciplined, but for what? And this is what Paul says. He says, ultimately, just for a wreath. And really, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if it is a wreath. It doesn't matter if it's a t-shirt or if it's that you're called a saint here on this earth. It perishes. A wreath that is perishable, he says, is all that you're striving for. And yeah, like, again, I don't think there's anything wrong with being put upon you a wreath that says, hey, great job, you did a great job, and this was, you know, well-fought or well-ran or well-executed or whatever these things might be. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But if that's the race, if that's your life, if it concludes with one day someone just putting on your tombstone uh, best 5K time in Hanover, Virginia but you spent your whole life doing it. That's it. And it'll, it'll that tombstone will stay there, and maybe, maybe one generation, maybe two, will come to that, that tombstone and say, wow, best 5K. I mean, that record's been broken 40 times. But, you know, they, they might look at that and say, that's what he was known for. That was the race that he ran. I don't know about you, but I... I think I'd rather my tombstone say something else. I told Calus one day when I die, and hopefully many many years from day, I want on my tombstone just to say, "Known by Jesus, known for Jesus." And I said, "Don't don't put that on my tombstone unless it's true." <laughs> that's all I want: known by him, known for him. Because much of our life is spent with people telling us that when that grave hits, that's it. So do all that you can before then. And Paul is saying the race looks much different. Because for the wreath of everyone else it is perishable, but what we have is imperishable. This is why Jesus gives us in Matthew chapter six. Verse 19, he says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if the eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if the eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness." If then the light is in you, I'm sorry, if then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Verse 24, now no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You cannot run two races at once, can you? I mean, you might could sign up for different races and, and have them one after the other, but you cannot, you cannot race two races at once. And far too long the church goes, and, uh, church goers have been just that, just people that just go to church, people that walk in because they need to do that thing, and then they walk out, hopefully not too long, right? And they're happy that that thing is finally over so that they can get back to their more important race. I'm just going to step onto this track because it's Sunday and that's what we do, kids. It's Sunday, kids. <laughs> right? We go to church, kids. That's what we do. And then as soon as that's done with, whew, all right, great job, kids. We're good. Back to life. Let's go. And hopefully we can make next Sunday. And that's where we end up. We end up being conflicted, serving different masters. But this is why Paul is saying that when you serve those other things they perish but the imperishable is the reward for those that are in Christ because the imperishable reward is Christ and so what Paul is really trying to give Corinth the people there and what I hope to give you today is that yes the reward is there for us waiting in glory but life is not pointless there is a point to this. There is, there is more to this than just you just need to get through this so that you can one day die and be in front of your Savior. There's more. This is verse 26 in our text. There's more to this. He says, so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. And so please note that the, the run might be all about the goal, but that doesn't leave out the run has a purpose itself. That we do not aimlessly just run along like a boxer just punching the air in a jog. But our journey is filled with something that other races do not have. Because if one race ends with anything and all things that will perish, And, and so that's all of the races, but then there's one race that ends with something that is imperishable or that we are imperishable, then there has to be something in this race that no other races have, and that is hope. That's what gives us the endurance to run. In fact, it's the very thing that we begin with, and Paul even says that if you are led into suffering, it ends there too, in hope. That's what we have in this race. That's what the author of Hebrews is getting at. In chapter 6, verse 11, it says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Why? So that you may not be sluggish, but be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So the, the race that Paul is speaking of, it produces many things, but hope is one of them, that a hopeless Christian is lacking either perspective or they are in unrepentant sin, that sometimes those things can can blur, like the, the perspective or unrepentant sin, but hope is there before the suffering, and again, it leads, it's where we're led to after the suffering, that if you are a Christian and you are hopeless, then I would encourage you to either gain some perspective, and I think that's where the body of Christ is so vital and having pastors in your life, or simply repent and realize that you are placing your hope into something that will perish. Because if you're running one race and you think that it's his race, and you just convince yourself that anytime something good happens that it must be God's favor and his blessing, then the moment something bad takes place, you will wonder, who is he? Because the race that God has placed us on is filled with hope. So that when something wrong happens, and it will, we know it will, we still have hope. This is why Calvin, when he commentated on this text, he says this, I do not run in vain. We must understand that the Christian life is not ran in vain, that as the world looks and maybe points and laughs and wonder, why would you serve a God that you cannot see, or they they believe that it's a logical fallacy, whatever it might be, we should know that we do not run this race in vain. Calvin, as he commentates on that, he says that, I do not run in vain. He says, nor do I run the risk of losing my labor, for I have the Lord's promise, which never deceives me. This is where Paul heads, continuing in our text, verse 27, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. Paul has already given us, and will continue to do so, give us reasons in which he exercises Christian freedom. And he's also given us reasons and ways that he is free to lay down those freedoms. This is, again, what we've been covering for months And yet he is still showing Corinth that the disciplines that one must exhibit and how even one must restrain themselves from certain inclinations when necessary. But also knowing that this cannot be accomplished unless the body is tamed and being held back from those inclinations, that you discipline yourself. Anytime I sit down to counsel someone and I, I sit down in a, in a coffee shop or in a home or an office or wherever it might be, if ever someone has started a sentence, and it's happened a few times with this, the devil made me do it, we have to back up. <laughs> oh, the devil made me do it. I, I didn't have any control. I think I just blacked out for a minute and I just started, you know, doing all of these horrible things that, I brought, that brought me a lot of pleasure. <laughs> the devil made me do it. No, he didn't. In fact, we'll get to this in, in months to come, but uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. The devil didn't make you do it. You did it. And so in this race, we must know that the Holy, it is the Holy Spirit that must help you because if you are going to have the capability of resisting sin, it will require God's help. Another reason to know that we do not run this race alone. We run it, yes, with the body of Christ, but we run it with the Lord. And so some may view Paul's statement here as somehow disqualifying himself unto salvation if he doesn't live a certain life of piety. Which piety just means a religious or reverent or devotion that that some have seen this text and said, "Oh, see, if you don't do all of those things, you'll lose it. You'll you'll be disqualified." No, I don't think I, that's I don't think that's what the text means at all. And uh, looking at it again, but if I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest uh, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. And so we should be careful to dismiss that when it comes to this race or when it comes to the Christian life, that there are not expectations that God gives to his people. And so just hang on with me as, as we go, because we, we should. It says throughout Scripture, there are multiple times where God says things like, hold on, press on, hold fast. And in fact, in 1 Corinthians, again, 15 Verse one. Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So he's saying, if we don't, so is he saying, so if we don't do these things, we're not saved? No. What he is saying is that to know him is to love him. Paul was well aware of how easy it, how easy it is to just simply talk the talk. And so I would even argue that if you aren't doing those things, do you know him? Not are you doing those things so that you might know him. So do you understand how this can easily go from law, gospel law? We could say that the law is placed upon you and you have been freed from it through Christ Jesus. But by the way, you have to do these things in order to hold on to Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. That will condemn you 100% of the time. You will eventually realize, if you're honest with yourself, that your works are not going to be enough to hang on to his hand. That his hand has to be hanging upon you. That, that if you, So we have the law, yes, that, we are, we, that crushes us, the gospel that resurrects us, and then we are given instruction because we are to delight in him. And so Paul knew of his freedoms, and he knew when to use them and when to reframe them, and he knew absolutely that he was saved by grace alone, but he knew that God wanted his works. We've entitled this entire sermon series, Life in Church by the Book, because that's what we desire. We desire to uh, stop just simply playing church, stop just showing up and just saying, like this is just the thing that I'm going to check off, but that there's actually a race to be run. And so when we move, when God saves us, we move from God's wrath to his mercy and his commands move from bondage to delight. We delight in the obedience that we see ourselves perform because we know that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights. And so when you do something good or when you love on someone else, you can, you can do that thing and be grateful that it's being done, but ultimately you should worship the Lord because it is him that has given you that ability and Paul also knows of the example that he is setting and the responsibility of a Christian that we have in our example. And so if you have been serving the Lord for any length of time and you believe that God expects nothing from you, then I would say you are still drinking milk. And if you can run this race without him or, that your obedient or, that or maybe that your obedience will save you, then I'd say that you're drinking whatever is weaker than milk. Because we must know that this race is brought to us because God saved us. And we endure because God is with us. And we will be with him because God has brought us to him. And so Paul knows of this example and he also knows the real joy that there is for those that are in him, that there's many wonderful things about the walk with the Lord. Again, that yes, he saved us and that for an eternity it was secured, but that we are given hope on this earth. We're also giving joy. The psalmist says in Psalm 16 verse 11 that you make known to me the path of life and in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I think we need to speak on joy maybe more often. I, I, at least I think with my own generation, I think it's a very humdrum at times, very depressed. Everyone, we, my generation loves to be honest and vulnerable, and we're, we're really great at filling uh, therapists' couches all over the country because we really enjoy just really getting to the root of what's going on. But what ends up happening often when there is no hope and when there is no joy is just pity parties galore of just, and I'll pick on the millennials because I'm in there with them, but it is just millennials after the, one after the next saying, woe is me, I have to raise these children. Woe is me, I've got to show up to work. Woe is me, I've got to cut my own grass. I'm not picking on you, I complain. <laughs> I do. Sometimes I'm just not quite as comfortable as I'd like to be. Isn't that funny? It's like I'm pretty comfortable, but it could be better. We need to speak more on joy because it's largely missing in the body of Christ. Joyless runners are the ones that are making excuses. Oh, well, I'm out of shape. Well, running will help you get in shape. Oh, I don't have a place to run. I looked it up. There's 3.6 million streets in this world. Go find one. I don't have the proper gear. Well, I don't think first century athletes had $285 Nike Alpha Flies and $400 Garmin GPS runner watches. I just don't think they did. I think you could do it without being tracked. I think you could also do it without posting it for others to see you've done it. Right? Maybe that's a part of the walk too, isn't it? That we just walk and we just think, oh, well, this isn't really walking unless others know about it. My kids aren't really, we're not really having devotions unless other moms know that we're having devotions, right? I mean, this is not possible, right? And so often Christians sit around and they sulk about not being good at scripture memorization or not having opportunities to speak or that the Bible is just too complicated and yet they haven't really disciplined themselves in any of these areas. We go out and we buy a nice Bible, a Christian book. We set up a nice prayer closet. We write up the perfect family liturgy and yet we're missing discipline. And it is because we are distracted by the rat race, the race of life, and we forget the things that Paul is speaking about. Or we just think, well, I've got all of my gear and so I could start running any day and we'll just have to make sure that it's sunny and 82 degrees. Christian If you are waiting for the, the right time to run the race, now is the time. Wait no longer and so again, this verse that we 've in twenty seven that gets used as one can lose their their salvation. I think it really is a is a combination of two or one thing that 's taking place, and that is that uh, and you 've heard this spoken about recently as well that poor Orthopraxy, I think is really what is happening here, that, that poor orthopraxy or, the, or right practice is a result of poor orthodoxy, right doctrine. And so when, we have, when we're doing the right thing with the wrong doctrine, we lack joy. Because we're just doing the thing that we know is right, but we don't know what makes it right. Or if we know what makes it right, but we don't do any of the thing, we lack joy. Because orthodoxy without orthopraxy, is it orthodoxy? I don't know. I mean, are you just knowing good things? I think you could still know good things without applying them. Sure you could. You know that it'd be good for you to exercise, don't you? You know these things. You know that it'd be good to uh, not go through McDonald's, but the fish filet is just too good. You know, I can't help it. It's too good. And so we do the things that we know we ought not to do. And then we lack joy. And so if you look at these scriptures and we interpret these verses as God's command to keep yourself in check or he'll disqualify you, then you are missing a major theme throughout scripture. And that theme is that the race that we are on as Christians was started and finished by the one who offers his shoes, his gear, his GPS, and his running lane. And so as I close, I want to leave you with this, that what Jesus makes abundantly clear, in fact, he makes it abundantly clear in John chapter 5, verse 24, and also in other places when he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life, and he does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. What Jesus is saying is that when you are saved, you have come from death and been placed into life that you have been saved. And so the race that you're running is not this race of constantly fearful of, if I don't stay in this lane, I will no longer be allowed to race. But rather, it has been ran for you. And so run the race. So if I may, I'd like to end in Romans chapter 8. If you have your Bibles and you want to flip there, I just... I remember feeling so challenged by this text and, and also worried when I first studied it, and then it became one of the greatest joys to read because it really, it really showed me what the race that God has placed before me looks like. In, for, in fact, it shows me what that race looked like even before I understood the race itself. And so as we look to this text, we're going to see and that the race set before me had not only been... Planned, but also executed by one. And so this is how this race is different than all others. And so when we we look at Paul's words here that are being used and race being used as an analogy, hang on to that as we look to this text because when we ask maybe a question such as, well, when did God decide to put you in the race? Romans 8, verse 29, for those who... Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And so, when did God plan to save you? Well, before the foundation of the earth. That should should fill you with great joy that before you even decided to set yourself on the track, God had decided that for you in his great love. And so we shouldn't get distracted or, or in fear of those that take different tracks, run different races. And yet the scripture also is Gentle in, the, in understanding that those that are on this race will face difficulties and that sometimes that you will face fear and suffering and that it will be hard to get through and that you'll even look at other races and kind of wish that you were a part of those things or even feel fear at what the, when those other races, what if they cross our paths? What if we are harmed? What if, what if that life is going to come against me? And so what do we say of those that are running a different race? Well, let's continue verse 31 of Romans 8. Then what shall we say to these things if God is for us, then who can be against us? So if there are those against us, we should know that there is that that they might you might feel it as if though they can defeat you, but there is only one that can destroy both flesh and soul, and he's on our side. What I'm trying to do is, is even before we leave this place, is to build your confidence in knowing that the race that has set before you is one filled with hope and one filled with joy. Because when we think of the one that can destroy us, we think, too, of our Heavenly Father that can destroy not just flesh but soul. Though we were worthy of being destroyed, we have been spared. And so, how were we spared so that we could be a part of the race? Look at verse 32. For he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, for us all, so that how will, we, uh, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So how are we spared? Because he, the Father, did not spare his son. And because of that, we should receive from him graciously so if you even ask, well, where's Jesus in this? Like I, I get this before the foundations of the earth that there were others on different races, and that we that uh, I've been spared so that I could be on this race. That Jesus has taken this upon Himself. What's Jesus doing during this time? Look at verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Jesus or Christ? Jesus is the one who died. More than that who was raised who is at the right hand of the father who inner who indeed is interceding for us. And so what is Jesus doing during your race? He is interceding on your behalf. I hope we never take prayer lightly. And I don't think that we can so long as we have that perspective that Jesus, when we, when we go into prayer with our family or when we're on a stage or wherever it might be, when we go to the Father in prayer, Jesus is interceding on our behalf. What a glorious reality to know that this race that you have been set on was not a mistake. That God called you. Do you understand? For the foundations of the earth, he called you, that he separated you from the other races. He spared you, even though you should have been on other races, he spared you so that you could run this one. He is interceding for you on, uh, he is interceding for us at this moment. And what can take us off of that path? What can separate us? Verse 35 nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so when you are running this race, do not think that there is anything that will take you off of that track. And allow that to be your hope. Allow that to be your joy. Because through the lenses of this type of love, the race that God has placed us in cannot help produce but cannot help but produce hope. And so this race gives us that hope. It gives us the fullness of joy. This race allows us to see life for what it is, the reality that the greatest gift giver, our Heavenly Father, sent to us the greatest gift, his perfect Son. And so Jesus is the prize. Hear hear me, before you leave, know that. That when I talk about the perishable and imperishable, I say to you, Jesus is the prize. That He is the prize at the start of the race. He is the prize during the long stretches and when you don't think that you can go on any longer. He is the prize when you feel that you have lost your way. And He is the prize when you feel like you are seeing clearly. He is the prize at the starting line and He is the prize when you cross the threshold of heaven. He is your prize. So let us run that we might obtain it. Thanks for listening to the Mosaic Church Sermon Podcast. For more information about Mosaic, including location and service times, or to support us financially, visit our website at MosaicRVA.com or find us on Instagram and Facebook at Mosaic Church RVA. Remember, it's not about us, it's all about Jesus.